Tonight on Rotten or Righteous, we ask the question, are you a Dapper Dan man? Welcome to Rotten or Righteous. I'm your humble host, Zach Geiler. Thank you for joining us today. The stunts you're about to see are all designed and supervised by trained professionals. They're extremely dangerous and should not be attempted by anyone, anywhere, at any time. With me today are the only two men I know who are bona fide and paterfamiliuses, Scott Judge and Steve Hagwood. Uh, before we get into the review, we here at Rotten or Righteous have set aside a portion of time at the top of our show to discuss a news story that's affecting millions of lives across the globe. In an effort to stay up to date and keep our listeners informed, we move on to a segment that is called Supremely Thoughtful and Useful Information Delivery, or STUPID for short. This is Stupid News with your host, Zach Geiler. Today's headline comes from the UK's Mirror and author Courtney Pockin. The headline reads, Toddler claims spooky lady visits him in bed every night and makes specific requests. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Where is it? Can we talk about chocolate pasta? <laughs> well, tonight we're ta- today we're talking about the spooky lady that visits a toddler in bed and makes specific requests. What? <laughs> <laughs> What is the nature of these requests? Are we at liberty well, to say? Yeah, let's let's. I'll just read the the quick article for you. A young boy is afraid to go to bed as he claims a quote spooky lady unquote has been visiting his room every night for a week and it's creeped his relatives out. No matter how old you get, nightmares are never pleasant. But one family can't work out if their toddler's creepy nighttime fears are based on bad dreams or if there's more to them. The young boy claims he has been seeing a strange lady in his room each night, and she makes a rather bizarre request. The child's grandma is so concerned about the tales of the ghostly figure that she's even written into an advice column for some help on what to do next. Oh, in a letter, help. <laughs> yes. When in doubt, go to the internet. That's always the best move. <laughs> I feel confident this is going to be resolved before you get done. In a letter to Slate.com's Dear Care and Feeding, uh, titled, My Grandson is Visited... (laughs) Dear Care and Feeding. I don't know. I think she was writing into, like, the equine... uh, (laughs) Equine section. Uh, But it's titled, My Grandson is Visited by a Spooky Lady Every Night. The unnamed woman explained all, and we have to admit, the whole thing does sound like something from a scary movie. She wrote, My two-and-a-half-year-old grandson has been having a recurring nightmare for the past week and a half. He wakes up very upset, saying there's a lady in his room. When asked if she talks to him and why he thinks she's there, he says that she has to get something from his room and she wants to put something on his foot. He's afraid to go to bed. <laughs> he's, he's afraid to go to bed. <laughs> My eye... <laughs> my favorite thing is she's invite and she's writing into an advice column. My first thought would be to go out and get like a closed circuit television camera and put it on the wall to see if some lady's really hopping exactly. in my kid's room. <laughs> sneaking through the window. Oh, it's just a nightmare. <laughs> uh, he's afraid to go to bed. My daughter is in the process of potty training him. 
and he also has a new sister who's four weeks old. I know that these life changes can cause children to have nightmares, and I understand that imagination is vivid at this age. However, this just seems so specific and kind of creepy. She adds that the family are at loss, or at a loss, over how to handle the situation. So, we're all parents here. How would you handle this situation? Yeah, get back to bed. Wait till this spooky lady's husband shows up and you think this is bad. <laughs> Do you have resolution to this story, by the way, before we go in any further? No, that's all I have. That's all that was written. That's, that's it. That's the whole story. That's the end of it. Yeah. Well, see, if it was me, I'd, I'd probably stop dressing up like an old lady and scaring my son every time he had an accident in his pants while potty training him. No, you wouldn't. Well, you know, if he starts talking to his mom, I'm going to get in trouble. I need to stop. Well, there you go. To keep out of trouble with your wife, I can see it. Here's, here's some of my favorite user comment suggestions that was on this story. Cornwall123 suggests, leave a box of chocolates out. If they're gone in the morning, you will know if a woman really visited during the night. Oh, yeah, that kid ain't going to eat the chocolates. <laughs> I mean, you know, I say, hey, there's a creepy person in my room. Somebody starts leaving me chocolates. It's going to be a creepy army tomorrow. You know what's going to happen? The creepy the creepy lady's going to go back to wherever she's from and tell her creepy friends there's free food. <laughs> and then next thing you know, there's a creepy old lady reunion going on in this two-and-a-half-year-old's room. I mean, that's the last thing you want to do if someone's breaking into your room is uh, leave them treats. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Wiz says, says uh, get the local priest in to perform an exorcism. Job done. Where did this came out of the UK? Uh, yeah, I believe so. So there you have it. But really, at the end of the day, if you or someone you love is being haunted by an elderly spirit at night, or if there's something strange that defies explanation, I urge you to call the true experts, 1-800-GHOSTBUSTERS. Let's go ahead and get into our review. The opening credits begin with a chain gang singing Poe Lazarus while breaking up stone for a road, and then the quote is shown, O Muse, singing me and through me tell the story of that man skilled in all the ways of contending, a wanderer harried for years on end. That's the opening line of Homer's Odyssey, and I only know that because I googled it right before we did this show. And very quickly, for the uninitiated, the Odyssey is an epic poem written by Homer uh, about the hero Odysseus's journey. He's going on a long journey to reunite with his wife. On the way, he battles a cyclops, he's tempted by beautiful sirens, and wins back his wife from evil suitors and ultimately escapes death. So, if you take that Greek epic, place it in 1930s in Depression-era Mississippi, you basically have the entire movie of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Although it is you know, interesting... It's amazing he had time to write that entire poem between all the mischief that Bart was getting into. Yeah, I knew that was coming. What is <laughs> an interesting bit of trivia, uh, the Coen brothers both admitted that neither of them actually read Homer or the Odyssey. Uh, in fact, the only person on set who did read through the Odyssey in, in real life is uh, Tim Blake Nelson, the actor that plays Delmar. <laughs> Delmar, of all people? Mm -hmm. In 1937, Mississippi, during the Great Depression, three convicts, Ulysses Everett McGill, Delmar O'Donnell, and Pete, escaped from a chain gang and set out to retrieve a treasure Everett claims to have buried from an armored truck robbery 
before its locale is flooded to make a lake and provide electricity for the state. And so we see this escape basically throughout the opening credits. They're chained together as they run away from this chain gang. They are running away. Dogs are chasing them. And then the movie opens up with the three of them attempting to hop aboard a train to escape the sheriff's dog uh, who are hunting them. And I believe that the first line of dialogue sets the tone for the entire movie. Everett hops on an open train car that is filled with transients and asks... Say, any of you boys, Smithies? Or, if not Smithies per se, were you otherwise trained in the metallurgic arts before straightened circumstances forced you into life aimless wanderers? Then Pete Trips pulls both Delmar and Everett off the train. Let's take a moment to describe the trio of protagonists. Scott, in your own words, who is Ulysses Everett McGill? Ulysses Everett McGill is a leader of this threesome. I would say that Ulysses Everett McGill is someone who wants to be anything other than what he is. He is truly a southern-born person, and yet he tries to constantly put on airs. He misspeaks vocabulary throughout the movie, trying to make him sound smarter than what he actually is. He uh, is arrested and thrown in jail for practicing law without a license, trying to be uh, greater than what he is. He's always trying to rise above his station, and because he did that, he lost everything. Steve, tell me about Pete. Pete is a guy with, I, I think he also had dreams. He just didn't have any real drive. You know, he didn't have the drive that Ulysses had. He uh, uh, he wanted to go places. He wanted to open that restaurant. He wanted to be the maitre d', you know. But uh, uh, even if he had the money, not sure that it ever really happened. Yeah, I think he he just didn't didn't really have the drive, the want to, uh, but but not the willingness to do what it took to really make it happen. So let me ask a question: okay. Who was actually the smarter of those three? Delmar. See, I would tend to agree with you because he had a unique way of looking at things. Although, I don't think he had confidence in himself to make decisions. Well, real quick before we answer that question, Delmar is, uh, of course, the kind of the, the punching bag of the group. He is seems slow-witted. He is the one that's just kind of going with the flow. He is definitely a follower instead of a leader. But Delmar is the only one that I think that has his head on straight and knows mm -hmm. what he wants to do and, and goes out there and gets it. And is doing everything he can to get it. His dreams aren't unattainable. All he wants to do is buy back the family farm. And uh, that's basically all he wants to do. He's the most simplistic and naive, uh, which definitely, I think, gives him a leg up on the other two guys. Mm -hmm. You know, they were uh, especially uh, Everett, uh, very uh, self-confident, self overly self-confident, you know. So, and I think that definitely hurt them. And his his naivete and simplicity, I think, really did work to his advantage, Delmar, that is. So after they fall off the train, the three get a lift from a blind man that's driving a hand car on a railway. And the man tells them a prophecy that they will find fortune. Actually, it's one of the most important parts of the movie is his entire line here. Mind if we join you, old timer? Yeah, I my son. John. 
You work for the railroad, Grandpa? I work for no man. Got a name, do you? I have no name. Well, that right there may be the reason you've had difficulty finding gainful employment. You see, in the mart of competitive commerce... You seek a great fortune. You three who are nigh in chain. You will find a fortune. Though it would not be the fortune you seek. But first... First you must travel. A long and difficult road. A road fraught with peril. Mm -hmm. You shall see things, wonderful to tell. You shall see a, a cow on the roof of a cotton house. <laughs> and oh, so many startlements. I cannot tell you how long this road shall be, but fear not the obstacles in your path, for fate has Vouchsafe your reward, though the road may wind. Yea, your hearts grow weary, still shall ye follow the way, even unto your salvation. And so we see that this entire movie, whether Everett intends it to be or not, is about salvation. It's about saving yourself from your past mistakes. It's about coming to terms with who you really are, what's really important. So then the trio makes their way to the house of Wash Hogswallop, Pete's cousin. <laughs> and then they're greeted. Oh, oh first of all, I, I like the point. I was watching this yesterday, and it kind of finally clicked. We get our first glimpse of Everett's wishy-washiness when it comes to what he truly believes in. You see, he wants to pretend that he's this... Uh, educated man, this man of science, this man that doesn't deal with faith or needs faith. And Pete asks Everett how the blind man knew about the treasure they were looking for. And Pete goes, I don't know, Delmar, though the blind are reputed to possess sensitivities compensating for their lack of sight, even to the point of developing paranormal psychic powers, now clearly seeing the future would fall neatly into that category. It's not so surprising, then, if an organism deprived of its early vi earthly vision. And then Pete goes, <laughs> Pete goes, he said he, he wouldn't get it. He said we wouldn't get the treasure we seek. And then immediately Everett changes his mind and says, well, what does he know? He's an ignorant old man. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like how that, that started this, this theme of Everett using science when it fits, using logical explanations when it fits, using faith when it fits, and then is constantly just going back and forth. Uh, going through that. I never noticed that until I watched this movie this week. And then as soon as uh, they're done talking, they get shot at by Pete's nephew, the younger Hogswallop. <laughs> Hogswallop. Told you I buried it myself. Your cousin still has this here horse farm and a forge and some shoeing impediments to restore our liberty of movement. Hold it right, Chair! <laughs> you men from the bank? You wash his bar? Yes, sir. Daddy told me I'm to shoot who's ever from the bank. Well, we ain't from the bank, young feller. Yes, sir. I'm also supposed to shoot folks serving papers. We ain't got no papers, neither. I nicked the census, man. Now there's a good boy. Is, is your daddy about? Pete's cousin takes their chains off, gives them some clothes, and then 
they all sit down to dinner. Mm-hmm. Yummy. Where Pete uh, finds out that uh, Warsh's wife, Cora, ran off on him. Nope, she R-U-N-N-O-F-T. Also, in this scene, uh, they're sitting around the uh, they're sitting around the the radio, and we're introduced a little bit to Papio Daniel because they're listening to the Papio Daniel Flower Hour, and uh, Papio Daniel is a governor uh, running for re-election, and his story comes throughout the movie. But we're also introduced to one of the major secondary characters in this scene, and that is Everett's use of the hair pomade Dapper Dan. Secondary character. <laughs> would, would you argue with that? Dapper Dan plays a large role in this movie. It's a hair treatment. Not a person. It's a hair treatment. I, at the end of the movie, the water comes, the uh, dog is floating in slow motion to the surface, there's Everett slow motion to the service. There is 1.2 million cans of Dapper, Dapper Dan. I'm it telling you, Dapper all well, over and, the place. And not only that, but the cops are able to track them with their hounds by using the scent of Dapper Dan. That's how they're constantly staying on their heels. If he changed his hair treatment. They Which he had a chance, him. but he's not a fop, man. He's a Dapper Dan man. And so, after uh, procuring some hair nets to, to protect his hair through the night, which, by the way, is there anything Everett cares more about? Uh, let me ask you a question. What, what does Everett care more about, his daughters or his hair? Oh, come on. His hair. <laughs> yeah, when he woke up, he didn't say, oh, daughters. Yeah, that's true. Say, oh, my hair. <laughs> my favorite part of this scene is where Everett's like on his knees and he's looking out the 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 looking out the hayloft there in the barn he's going we're in a tight spot here we're in a tight spot we're in a tight spot <laughs> we got a skedaddle and uh hogwallop is called judas iscariot here as well judas iscariot yeah. hogwallop <laughs> <laughs> okay so they take the car out of the barn that's on fire they escape but the car breaks down the next morning and uh <laughs> everett goes into town to buy some car parts but the only problem is i can get the part from bristol it'll take two weeks here's your pomade two weeks that don't do me no good here's ford auto man's bristol hold on now i don't want this pomade i want dapper dan i don't care dapper dan i care fop well i don't want fop i'm a dapper dan man watch your language young fella this is a public market now if you want dapper dan i can order it for you haven't in a couple of weeks well, ain't this place a geographical oddity? Two weeks from everywhere. Forget it. So, he goes back to camp uh, without parts, and there's a gopher being cooked over an open fire. <laughs> and Everett explains to his friends that he has a way for them to get a car. He stole a watch from uh, the Cousin Hog's wallop, which Pete gets really angry about. Because you stole from my kin. Who was fixing to betray us. You didn't know that at the time. So I borrowed it till I did know. That don't make no sense. Pete, 
It's a fool who looks for logic in the chambers of the human heart. My favorite line in the entire movie, and one that I've used ever since I've seen this, which is, that don't make no sense. <laughs> but their conversation is interrupted by uh, a congregation singing the hymn as I went down to the river to pray. And they follow the congregation down to the river, and there is a mass baptism taking place. What is going on in this scene? I know that there's an entire congregation being baptized, but as a preacher, a millennial minister, I have never seen 70 people line up on the shores to all get baptized. I've never seen it on the shores, but I've seen it in uh, different denominations uh, where they have a baptism and they, they'll do it once a quarter or, or however often. And there may be, you know, 50, 60, 70 people that are baptized at a single time. Well, could it be? In a baptistry. And this is, this is what I was curious about. Could it be, because we are still in, you know, 1930s, that perhaps these people are just now being affected by the restoration movement? And finally learn that baptism is the the key to salvation? Because that's the way it is portrayed, that baptism is how you are saved in this movie. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what he says, Jim. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, to me, it's interesting because I've heard of, uh, like, I hate to say mass baptisms because how much how much is a mass? But Steve says 50, 60, 70 at a time because I know there are some in the denominational world that will pick a day. You know, and I've heard people say, well, I'm going to be baptized on such and such day on down, you know, and there'll be other people along with me a month from now. Or, but, you know, some of the restoration movement preachers, you know, we've heard that they've had like on a single occasion, those that would come forward to to be baptized really high numbers. I, I, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, 100 years ago that when some folks would go out to, to preach. They would have the meetings. It'd be nothing for maybe 10, 15 people to come forward to be baptized on a given night, which I know is not the number that we're looking at when they went down to the river to pray, but uh, we're not used to that. Right. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Um, hey, you're welcome. <laughs> so everybody's getting baptized, and then Delmar... Runs straight out in the water, cutting the line, and uh, he's baptized. And then Delmar, I, I love his, I really truly do love his explanation of why he was baptized. Because whether the Cohen brothers intended it or not when they wrote it, they got it pretty much on the nose. Well, that's it, boys. I've been redeemed. The preacher done washed away all my sins and transgressions. It's a straight and narrow from here on out, and heaven everlasting's my reward. Delmer, what are you talking about? We got bigger fish to fry. The preacher said all my sins is washed away, including that Piggly Wiggly I knocked over in Yazoo. I thought you said you was innocent of those charges. Well, I was lying. And the preacher said that that sin's been washed away, too. Neither God nor man's got nothing on me now. Come on in, boys. The water is fine. And uh, that speech right there was enough to convince Pete to get baptized too. So, that's where that scene ends. And they are all in a car driving down the road where they come across... Oh, real quick, uh, we do want to need to talk about the fact that they're arguing about whether or not their baptism, which absolved them of sin, was enough to get them cleared of their charges. 
The preacher said it absolved us. For him, not for the law. Surprise you, Pete. I gave you credit for more brains than Delmer. But they was witnesses seen us redeemed. That's not the issue, Delmer. Even if it did put you square with the Lord, the state of Mississippi's a little more hard-nosed. You should have joined us, Everett. It couldn't have hurt none. At least it would have washed away the stink of that palmade. Whether they intended it or not, it does teach an important lesson that uh, you can find God's forgiveness, but that doesn't take away the consequences of your actions. Very true. So they're driving down the road, and they come across a young African-American fella who they pick up. And uh, the young man explains that his name is, is Tommy, and he was out on that road, which is in the middle of nowhere, because he was going to sell his soul to the devil to teach him how to play guitar real good. For that, you traded your everlasting soul? Well, I wouldn't use me. Then Pete asks, what does the devil look like? Well, of course, there are all manner of lesser imps and demons, Pete, but the great Satan himself is red and scaly with a bifurcated tail. He carries a hay fork. Oh, no. No, sir. He's white. As white as you folks. With empty eyes and a big hollow voice. He loved to travel around with a mean old hound. Tommy explains that the devil is white and has mirrors for eyes, and he travels around with a mean old hound. Well, there's one person we've already been introduced to that fits this description fairly well, and that is Sheriff Cooley. Is it possible that Sheriff Cooley is the devil? We'll find out next week on Rotten or Righteous. Uh, Tommy tells them that uh, there's a man down in Tishaminga that pays good money for folks to sing into his can. And so they pull up into a... Well, radio station. And they meet a man who is looking for old-timey music. And, well, Everett just became a brand-new band that was just invented called the Soggy Dot Bottom Boys because, well, two of his, his, his friends there do have, in fact, soggy bottoms from their baptism. And they go in there and they sing, I'm a man of constant sorrows. And little do they know that this will eventually turn into a huge hit. So that night, they're all sitting around the campfire, and Tommy's playing guitar, when they hear the hounds again. And the barn that's nearby is, uh, well, they were found by Sheriff Cooley again. Well, let's go back real quick. Uh, they're all sitting around the fire, and they're explaining what they're going to do with their money. And it kind of reveals a little bit more about each one of these characters, uh, Pete says that he's going to go out west and start a restaurant and be the maitre d'. And everybody will say, yes, sir, and nah, sir, and in a jiffy, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> and Delmar says that he's just going to go and buy back the family farm because he ain't no kind of man if he ain't got land. And then, again, we get this little glimpse that Everett is not being honest because mm -hmm. when asked... What he's going to do with it, what was the plan for when he stole this money, this million point two, uh, he said he didn't have a plan. He just stole it. And then Pete goes, well, that hardly sounds like you. Everett doesn't do anything without thinking it through, or at least thinking it through to the best of his limited ability. And so that right there, Pete, Pete might be the smartest one in here because that was a red flag to Pete. Because mm -hmm. if you saw his face, he goes, well, that doesn't sound like you. Then he's interrupted before he can press the, the, the question further. Because that's when the sheriff comes and burns down the barn that uh, 
their car was in front of. And so, again, we find them without a car, without a barn, and they're walking on the road all alone. And then a, a fast-moving car comes up behind them, and a stranger rolls down the window and asks Scott's second favorite line in this entire movie. Is this a road to Itabina? They're arguing about whether or not this is the road to Itabina, and then, well, cop cars come up over the hill, and the guy goes, hop on in while you give it a tank. <laughs> so they're in the car, and they're driving down the road, and then my new favorite quote from this movie that I did not get until this most recent viewing, they're walking around, and uh, the driver goes, any of you boys know your way around the Walter PPK? Well, see, that's where we can't help you. I don't believe it's in Mississippi. That joke is hilarious. Person in the car is, in fact, the infamous mobster George Nelson. Don't call me babyface. Uh, uh, they're driving down the road together, George Nelson and uh, our our three heroes, and he sees something that he just does not like. <laughs> the thing I hate worse more than worse than coppers is cows. I hate cows worse than coppers. <laughs> oh, George, not the livestock. So I do have a, a question for you. Why why does George hate cows so much? Because as a younger child, his mother used to force feed him hamburgers, and he got tired of that. It's actually, what he, he burger. Actually, he prefers horse. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when that horse has started to turn. And if there's no horse, he enjoys gopher. But after killing the cows and outrunning the cops, they make it to a bank where George tells everyone that he's going to uh, rob... Three banks in two hours. Hold the applause and drop your draws. That's right. <laughs> I'm George Nelson, and I'm here to sack the city Itabina. And he leaps down, and he gets the money, and as he leaves, a uh, old woman, probably the most adorable old woman I've ever seen on television, whispers, Nelson. And we all he... know that we all know that woman too. Not specifically her, but in our lives, we know that woman. We've seen that woman. Yeah, and... she cooked me horse the other day. It's and George. Uh, I would say he starts out as angry, but very quickly his anger turns to, um, well, melancholy, sad, sadness. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. looks like he's on the verge of of tears. And it it goes past this scene. They're sitting around a campfire, and George is still. Very, very sad. Why did something as small as being called Babyface Nelson take down this larger-than-life character, do you think? What caused this sudden uh, change in George's demeanor? Bipolar disorder. Bipolar. I, I, think, I think it shows the insecurity that you have in some of these larger-than-life characters. He wants to be known for... Robin Banks. He wants to be known for being an outlaw, for being larger than life, and yet all he's known for is being called Babyface. 
See, and I think if it's not bipolar, he's got mother issues. I think it's bipolar. I mean, I've said it before, and I'll probably say it again. Zach, you're wrong. (laughs) 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 It's it's classic bipolar uh, behavior. And, and, you know, Scott's got some background in the uh, mental health uh, field. I used I actually used to do presentations in schools where I would talk about depressive disorder. And one of the things we would talk about is bipolar disorder. And he's one of the examples that I used to use because you see him go from a manic phase just immediately into a depressive phase. And, you know, that trigger that was there, you know, sometimes there is or isn't. But, you know, for him, uh, it was clear. And then all that money, he absolutely cared nothing about. Uh, yeah, and hey, the clear indication of that was the stuff, you know, like uh, Zach talked about in the beginning. It's flying out the window. He doesn't care. It wasn't about the money. Yep. It was about it was about the thrill, you know, and, and uh, you know, when the thrill was gone and the trigger was, as you said, that woman saying that about him, and he's just, just as far the other direction. Hey, I got a question. You know, I've, I've got a question because I asked you about eating horse. Yes, okay. I would eat Babyface Nelson. <laughs> George Nelson leaves, leaves them with his share of the the loot. And then we're introduced to Papio Daniels' political rival, a man by the name of Homer Stokes. And Homer Stokes is standing up for the interests of the little man. And you know that because Homer Stokes travels around with a little person that carries a broom. So after being introduced to Homer Stokes, we get into a montage and we see how big uh, the Soggy Bottom Boys and Man of Constant Sorrows is getting as a woman goes into a store to buy a record only to be told they are all sold out. And then we kind of just follow the boys for a little while during a musical montage. They're, um, well, they buy a new car with their bank loot. No, they, they don't, do they? No, they steal that car from outside of a gas station. Even though they have their bank loot. Uh, my, my favorite scene during this montage, though, is uh, they steal a pie out of a woman's <laughs> out of a woman's windowsill that it was she set her pie out there to cool and and Pete and Everett come up and steal the pie and run away and about ten seconds later you see sweet old Delmar come up with a rock and a twenty dollar bill and just stick the rock in the twenty dollar windowsill there he pays the woman for a pie. Well, he can't steal anymore. It's been baptized. Well, and it didn't bother Pete. It, it was sure clear, did. though, I think that Delmar took the baptism a lot more seriously than Pete did. Yeah. After the montage, they're driving down the road, and they hear music. Or, or Delmar keeps talking, and Pete tells him to shut up. And then, for some reason, he shoves Pete shoves his entire fist in his mouth, bites down, and screams. <laughs> jumps out the car. This is my biggest question I have for this entire movie. How does Pete know the sirens? Well, he didn't because he just, he just, he, he saw them first. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, ain't you going to introduce us? I don't know their names. I've seen them first. Okay, that's fine. But if I'm driving down the road and all of a sudden some music starts pouring through the field, I'm going to keep driving. Maybe he could tell by the beautiful voices because they I'm- could sing. Now, they didn't make this clear, but this is clearly the Odyssey. Uh, The Sirens and the Odyssey, of course, are mythological creatures that are able to lure sailors to their doom with their music. And that's exactly what is happening here. 
So they're driving down the road and they're drawn to these beautiful women, these sirens, or as they call them, sirens. And they're down in a riverbed and they're working on getting their laundry done. They're doing a terrible job with their laundry, Scott. Horrible. I've never washed laundry, but in a river. But I feel like if you're that wet when you're washing laundry, like just head to toe soaked, you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> and you're right. Head to toe soaked. No, these are the sirens from Homer's Odyssey. They're, they're trying to tempt and, and draw these men away. And, and sure enough, uh, they start getting our, our boys drunk. And eventually they pass out. And they wake up in the morning. And Delmar sees the perfect outline of Pete's clothes. As if his body just kind of disappeared. And his clothes just lay where it sat. And then Delmar notices that where his heart is, something is beaten. They left his heart. <laughs> and it turns out not to be a heart, but it was a toad. Can't you see it, Everett? Them sirens did this to Pete. They loved him up and turned him into a horny toad. Now, now I understand, because later on the movie it tells us that uh, the sirens got him out of his clothes and hogtied him and delivered him to the sheriff. That's what happens. But why do you think, opinion time, did they take the time to uh, lay Pete's clothes out perfectly where <laughs> he was laying? Now, keep in mind, I don't think they put the frog in the shirt. I think that was pure just happenstance of a frog hopping inside of a shirt. But I do not understand why they would have taken the, the couple of minutes it would take to lay out his clothes perfectly as if he just disappeared. Well, what was the effect of laying his clothes out? What did the other two do? They stood there and looked at it, right? Instead of just, instead of just right, right away scattering, they stood there and looked at it. So maybe they thought if we do that, you know, these two will hang around a little bit longer. Plus, Let's come back and take what them. Were these, what were these women doing? What were these sirens doing when we first meet them? Maybe they washed his clothes up and laid him out to dry. See, I like that second theory better. There you go. But again, I would not trust these women to wash clothes. They're wonderful singers. They're clearly gifted stuctresses. They're not that great at laundry. I'll give you but, an uh, opinion. Oh, goodness. Here's my opinion. If they didn't lay out the clothes like that, the horny toad would have had nowhere to hide, and it would have prevented Delmar from slipping, sliding, and running through the water trying to catch Pete that they can get him back to where he needs to go. So you're saying it wasn't the sirens that laid the clothes out, but the directors. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. Show's over. This is next, stupid. Next scene, they're driving down the road, and, and Delmar is looking at this poor frog. <laughs> and Efren goes, I'm not sure that's Pete. Of course it's Pete. Look at him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, um, 
That's not very complimentary of poor old horny toads. <laughs> That's right. That's a terrible insult to horny toads. And so they're fit, sitting down at a fine restaurant, and Everett is trying to explain uh, why Delmar has to keep Pete, the horny toad, in a box instead of out on the table. Uh, and then they're introduced to a big man that comes up and uh, introduce himself. That kind of barnyard. Language. I believe I've seen you boys around here before. Allow me to introduce myself. Name of Daniel Teague, known in these precincts as Big Dan Teague. All of those who are pressed for time, Big Dan, toot court. Big Dan <laughs> in, invites him. Uh, or Big Dan explains what kind of business he's in. What kind of work you do, Big Dan? Sales, Mr. McGill, sales. And what do I sell? The truth, every blessed word of it, from Genesee on down to Revelations. That's right. The word of God, which let me tell you there is good money in during these times of woe and want. People are looking for answers, and Big Dan sells the only book that's got them. And after a little while, they go out, and Big Dan is going to uh, teach them how to be purveyor of Bibles. But in reality, Dan is going to take a tree branch off of a tree and beat Delmar nearly to death with it while Everett <laughs> tries to figure out what lesson he's trying to teach him. And he knocked the sweet corn right out of Everett's mouth. <laughs> yep. And Delmar, he's like an angry chihuahua that just <laughs> keeps latching on. He's on his legs, he's on his back, on his shoulders, holding on to his head, just getting whipped everywhere, throwing on the ground. Everett's true colors do come out in that, don't they? Because uh, as long as the fight didn't involve him, he was he was he just as happy to see, yeah. To see Pete or to see Delmar get, you know, this stew beat out of him. He was just trying to figure out what uh, Big Dan was trying to teach him. So after Big Dan's lesson, he steals all the money that Everett has in his bib overalls front pocket. And he's going to go and take whatever he's got in the box. He assumes the shoebox is filled with money as well, only to find out that it's a toad. And he picks up the toad. And says, don't you know these things give you warts? Squishes the toad and then tosses it at the tree. <laughs> and I love the look on Delmar's face. Well, you know, he's a he's a great actor, by the way. Can I mean, you imagine? He's think your about best that. friend. Your best friend's a toad. And this big guy with an eye patch comes up and just squishes it and throws it away. <laughs> and so after that scene, we find ourselves... At night, during a thunderstorm, and Pete is screaming, which is obvious because he was just squished. Of course he's going to be screaming. <laughs> and it turns out that Pete's not a toad after all. And instead he's being, uh, he's, he's strung up over a tree as somebody is beating him with a whip trying to uh, get information out of Pete. They want to know where Delmar and Everett are heading where they're going so they can arrest them as well. And after a few beatings, Pete confesses everything. But not before... Uh, that's pretty much it. Any part of that thing that uh, you want to talk about? Devil's there. Well, he, makes yeah, it pretty he struggled obvious. With, he struggled when they dropped the noose. Yeah, he, that's, he, that's really know. what gives him off. He throws the noose down and, and Sheriff Cooley says, Stairway to heaven, Pete. We shall Your all friends have abandoned you. By and by. The next morning, Everett and Delmar are in the back of a hay truck, 
And Everett is trying to console Delmar, saying that that Pete uh, would have wanted them to press on to get the treasure. And Delmar is, of course, struggling with that. And then they pass the chain gang that they used to be on. And as they're driving, they see a man that looks remarkably like Pete standing in the middle of the chain. A lot of similarities. A lot of similarities. To which Everett asks, does Pete have a brother? Not that I'm aware. They get to town, there's a Homer Stokes rally going on. Now I know the Sunnysiders would agree with me when I say that the great state of Mississippi cannot afford four more years of Pappy O'Dam. Four more years of cronyism, nepotism, rascalism, and service to the enemy. The choice, she's a clear. Yeah, Pappy O'Daniel, slave of the interest. Homer Stokes, slave of the little man. Ain't that right, little fella? He ain't lying. And ladies and gentlemen, the little man has admonished me to grasp the broom of reform and sweep this state clean. It's going to be back to the flour mill, Pappy. The interest can take care of themselves. And then he introduced uh, a musical act known as the Little Warby Gals. And they're going to sing In the Highway. Everett, who just gets off the hay truck in the middle of this rally, uh, he overhears him and then comes up what is probably the greatest line of dialogue, or lines of dialogue, in the entire movie. Daddy? He ain't our daddy. Oh, uh, hey, what's this Warby Gals? Your name's McGill. No, sir, not since you got hit by that train. What are you talking about? I wasn't hit by any train. Mama says she was hit by a train. Bluey, nothing left. Just a grease spot on the yelling end. I wasn't hit by any train. That's right. Now Mama's got us back to war. That's a maiden name. You got a maiden name, Daddy? No, darling. Daddy don't have a maiden name. She... That's your misfortune. That's right. And now Mama's got a new bow. He's a suitor. Yeah. I heard about that. Mama says that he's bona fide. You give a ring? Yes, sir. Big and got it, Jim. Mama checked it. It's bona fide. He's a suitor. What's his name? Vernon T. Waldrop. Uncle Vernon. Till tomorrow. Then he's gonna be daddy. I am the only daddy you got. I am the heterofamilias. But you ain't bona fide. Uh, uh, what does bona fide mean? Means he ain't faking. Okay. He's real. He's got a job. He's, he's a suitor. He's good. He's a suitor. I just looked it up on Google. Bonafide means genuine and real. He's a suitor. Uh, so Everett goes and hunts down his wife, who just so happens to be in Woolsworth. That's another thing. Why are you telling our gals I was hit by a train? Lots of respectable people have been hit by trains. Judge Hobby over in Cookville was hit by a train. What was I supposed to tell him? That you were sent to the penal farm and I divorced you from Shane? Take your point. But it does put me in an awkward position vis-a-vis my progeny. Waldrick comes up and uh, confronts Everett. And the first thing that Everett does is sniff Waldrick's hair. (laughs) And asks him, (laughs) You've been using my hair treatment? (laughs) You've been using my hair treatment? Where in life does this happen, by the way? (laughs) 
Two men are about to go at it. There's anger. You can see it in their eyes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't talk to my fiance. Well, that's, that's that later where, where oh. Everett, Everett goes, why? Because after Penny's explaining that, uh... That ain't your daddy, Alvinell. Your daddy was hit by a train. Now, Penny, you stop that. No, you stop it. Vernon here's got a job. Vernon's got prospects. He's bona fide. What are you? I'll tell you what I am. I'm the pedophilias, and you can't marry him. I can, I am, and I will. Tomorrow, I gotta think about the little Warby gals. They look to me for answers. Vernon can support them and buy them lessons on the clarinet. The only good thing you ever did for the gals was to get hit by that train. Well, you lying, unconstant, succubus. Whoa, whoa, whoa! You can't swear at my fiance. Oh, yeah? Well, you can't marry my wife. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't swear at my fiance. You can't marry my wife. To which they both throw up fists. Everett has this normal boxing stance, while Vernon Waltrip looks like a 1920s cartoon of a boxer. He's got his his, his fists upturned, and he just beats the snot out of Everett. <laughs> well, you know why? Somebody come up and smell my pomade, pom, pomade I'm going to be upset too. And then uh, Everett is thrown out of Walsworth. And stay out of the Walsworth. And then the next scene, probably one of the more important ones in the movie, they're in a movie theater. And so they're watching a movie, and then the movie stops, and then the, the prison is taking the, the chain gang out to enjoy a picture show. And so uh, they hunker down trying not to be seen when they overhear a familiar voice. Do not seek the treasure. It's a bushwhack. They're fixing an ambush. Do not seek the treasure. We thought you was a toad. Two parties are shouting back at each other, trying to get information to each other. Uh, one person's trying to tell, uh, uh, or Pete's trying to tell Delmar and Everett not to seek the treasure because the people know that they're going for it. Pete's trying to tell Delmar that, uh, or Delmar's trying to tell Pete that, well, the reason why they abandoned him is because he thought he was a toad. <laughs> you know what's funny to me? I understand. Uh, uh, I understand why Pete's talking that way, but Delmar. It was almost like, you're talking that way, so let me talk that way. <laughs> Why could Delmar not just use his regular voice and whisper? Well, if the guard notices him, he's going to jail. <sighs> you're probably right. Yeah, he wouldn't notice him, turned around, hunkered in their seat, you know, facing the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Regular clothes. Right. But first of all, when you're whispering that loud, though, you're being like the opposite of inconspicuous. Yeah. Uh, now that they know that Pete's not a squish toad, they go and break him out of prison. Uh, well, Pete gets out, and he's feeling very, very, very upset that he ruined the treasure for his two best friends, to which Everett finally admits that there was no treasure. That's all right, Pete. I feel wretched. 
boiling your place for a million dollar point two. Isn't he not my girl? That's all right. You boys are true friends. You my boo companions. Pete, I, I don't, I don't want you to beat yourself up about this, eh? I can't help it, but that's a, a, a wonderful thing to say. Pete, uh, well, the fact of the matter is. There ain't no treasure. Fact of the matter is, I never was. But, so, where's all the money from the armored car job? I never knocked over no armored car. I was sent up for practicing law without a license. But? I had to bust out. My wife wrote me she was getting married. I gotta stop it. I had two weeks left on my sins. I couldn't wait two weeks. She's getting married tomorrow. My added time for the escape. I don't get out now to 1987. No, I am sorry about that. I'll be 84 years old. I guess they'll tack on 50 years for me, too. 84 years old. Well, I'll only be 82. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, I love Delmar because he's genuinely happy that he's only going to be 82 when he gets out of prison. Yeah. He's, he's always looking on the always looking on the bright side. I, he, right here, you he's were keeping actually, on the sunny side. We started the show by talking about the characters and, and, and who they are. This here is a great picture. And then also where uh, Pete was screaming when he was getting whipped. You think of the guilt that Pete had because of what he did to to rat his friends out. That crushed him. And then you look at Delmar, how he's got the happy go lucky kind of kind of spirit. And here's the manipulative, uh, the manipulative one just kind of twisting and causing all these problems and and you know, really only looking out for himself. That's his only concern is himself. Pete and Delmar, they think more about than just themselves. Absolutely. So they get into a fight, and uh, then they crash down a hill and roll through a clearing and look up. And, well, that hill is, is quite occupied. There's a clan meeting going on there, and there's Big Burning Cross. And the Grand Wizard of the clan is singing Scott's favorite song in the whole soundtrack, Oh Death. Oh Death. Oh, death. Won't you spare me over till another year? <laughs> oh, this song has caused me problems in my life. <laughs> when we first went to Memphis Barbecue, Scott and I, it was, we didn't mean to go to Memphis Barbecue. It started out with just Wanting to see the Mississippi, which turned into crossing the Mississippi, which turned into we're in Arkansas, which turned into you can't say you visited a state until you actually stop and put your feet on the ground, which turned us into a back road in Arkansas and a tobacco field, 
where we were listening to the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack. We both get out. Oh, Death starts playing. Now, if you haven't seen his picture, Scott is a, a, well, he's a larger man. He's looking good, but he's a larger man. And I will say that I have never seen such a large man move so fast. <laughs> then when we were standing there, and all of a sudden you just hear, oh, dear. Scott looked as if the clan was really behind him. And he jumped into the air in one fluid motion, slid into the side of my Honda Accord, shut both doors, mind you. And locked them. And locked them in the span of maybe two seconds. I don't understand how it, it just... We're in a huge open field. And it's like this music is loud and it's got that echoing sound just kind of coming out everywhere and on top of me I, I was literally scared to death what i don't understand is if we truly were being attacked by the clan in that moment you were on your own anyway um they noticed that the clan has tommy from this their episode of singing in the can back in yazoo and they're gonna kill tommy the clan is but before they do that, they do some chanting and a dance number. To which I wrote down the question, do you guys think the KKK gets together on weekends to practice these dance routines that they're doing? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I can honestly say I have no idea what the KKK is doing. Could, could this show just have gotten any more uncomfortable? No, now, you know what the KKK is doing on the weekends, right? No, it's not that. I'm just, I know. I, I'm actually downplaying. <laughs> That's like, hey, do you guys still? <laughs> no, I'm downplaying the ridiculousness of this group because the, I imagine the Cohen brothers did study the clan and some of their traditions and, and whatnot. And mm -hmm. the fact is that these men are all dressing up in giant sheets and practicing marching formation so that they make a giant cross as they're crisscrossing each other and chanting and in step is hilarious to me. And it just yeah, really this, speaks to the ridiculousness of this group. This and, and this, yeah, this is more than just lining up, you know, side to side and front to back and marching forward or doing about face. You're right. They're crisscrossing. They're, you know, this this is like an entire band field show uh, without these folks playing the instruments. All right, so we're at a clan rally. Tommy's going to get hanged, but. Pete, Delmar, and Everett save him by cutting down a burning cross, and it lands and crushes Big Dan Teague. Or if you're in your hurry, Big Dan. Two toots. That's um, <laughs> after he catches the flag that they used as a projectile. That is true. And so they run away, and they end up uh, going to a, another political rally. And we overhear Pappy telling his, his uh, advisors that he's going to try to steal... Homer Stokes's political advisor, who just so happened to be Vernon Waltrip, away from him. But Everett gets the idea, now that he knows that Vernon's going to be in this building, that he's going to go and use it to talk to his wife, Vernon's fiance. And so they <laughs> say that they're going to uh, they're going to go into the back and pretend to be a band. Now Pete does have some reservations about this. Wait a minute. Who elected you leader of this outfit? Since we've been following your lead, 
We got nothing but trouble. I got this close to being strung up and consumed in a fire. And whipped no end and sunstroke and soggy. it. Turned into a frog. He wasn't turned into a frog. Almost loved up, though. So you're against me now, too. Is that how it is, boys? So they go in there and uh, they start playing music. Uh, Pappy is trying to get uh, trying to get Vernon over onto his team, and Vernon goes, "I can't leave my candidate in the middle of a campaign, especially for someone with lacking moral fiber." To which Pappy responds, "Moral fiber? I've had more fiber since the man you're representing was messing in his drawers." Um, <laughs> Moral fiber and high mightiness. And so, eventually, they start singing Man of Constant Sorrows, to which the whole place just loses their minds. Ain't you ever heard of Amor Fidelis? For so long, people have been wondering who in the world are these soggy bottom boys. Of course, Stokes represents them, or, or recognizes them rather, as the men who interrupted his clan rally. You see, Homer Stokes is the Grand Wizard of the local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. And so he tries to put a stop to the music. Homer Stokes is arguing, ultimately, that they, they escaped from a farm. And that their guitarist, Tommy, sold his soul to the devil. But the people don't care, because they're the Soggy Bottom Boys. And Pappy, sensing a, a chance to sway the crowd over on his side, gets up and ultimately pardons the, the Soggy Bottom Boys. And Stokes is literally run out on a rail. Literally. They Bring in a big old rail, put them on it, and run them out. <laughs> it's interesting. Happy O'Daniel actually based loosely on a uh, political figure from Texas, William Lee O'Daniel. Yeah. A Democratic politician from Texas who had a popular radio program known for his, his populist ideas. So there Happy O'Daniel Flower Hour. Um, you know where he was born? In Yazoo, Mississippi. Malta, Ohio, over in Morgan County. Really? And so, Pappy O'Daniel uh, pardons the boys. Vernon is publicly shamed. And Miss Warvey agrees to marry Everett again. Except one last problem. She needs her ring, which is in an old roll-top desk in a cabin in the Tennessee Valley. And she is not going to get married unless she has that ring. She's a gold digger. Four... 
uh, they go on this last final leg of their journey. We have a wrap-up on a, a, a favorite character of mine's story. As George Nelson is being paraded through the streets. George? Hello, boys! Well, these little men finally caught up with the criminal of the century. Looks like the chair for George Nelson. Yup! Gonna electrify me! I'm gonna go off like a Roman candle! <laughs> One in thousand folks chasing a rabbit through yours truly! Gonna suck all the power right out of the state! Gonna shoot sparks out the top of my head and lightning from my fingertips! I'm George Nelson! And I'm feeling ten feet tall! Looks like George is right back on top again. Well, looks like George's back on top again. <laughs> yeah, which is exactly what Effort told Delmar when he just walked away, just so sad and depressed, and his head was down, and, and Everett said, he'll be back on top again. All right, so they emerge into a clearing towards the cabin where uh, the ring is at, except they notice that there's three nooses hanging over the top of a branch, and sure enough... Uh, the sheriff and his men come out. End of the road, boys. No, wait a minute. Let's go, boy. It's had its twists well, and turns. Wait a now? Now it deposits you here. Well, wait a minute. You have eluded fate and you have eluded me for the last time. Tie their hands, boys. You can't do this now. Didn't know you'd be bringing a friend. He'll just have to wait his turn. Share one of your graves. You can't do this. We just got pardoned by the governor himself. It went out on the radio. Is that right? <laughs> well, we ain't got a radio. God have mercy. And then Cooley tells them to have their prayers. And for the first time, we see Everett down on his knees... And he prays to God. Heartfelt. Everett. Tommy, I'm sorry we got you into this. Good Lord. What do we do? Please look down and recognize us, poor sinner. Please, Lord, I just want to see my daughters again. I've been separated from my family for so long. I know I've been guilty of pride and sharp dealing. I'm sorry that I turned my back on you, Lord. Forgive me. And help us, Lord, for the sake of my family, for Tommy's sake, and for Delmer's and Pete's. see my daughters again, Lord. Help us. Please. Interesting point about that prayer is that it's very selfless. For the first time, mm -hmm. he's not thinking about himself. I mean, yes, he's thinking about himself, but 
The main crux of that prayer is he doesn't want to leave his daughters without a dad. He wants Tommy and Delmar, who are innocent, to uh, get out of this. And so, yes, it, it is, it's about as selfless as I think the character Everett could get. Is I'll agree with moment. that. It's the selfless as he shows in the whole movie. And at that moment, as soon as his prayer is done, a wall of water comes crashing through, destroys the cabin. Dapper Dan cans go everywhere. <laughs> there and, must have been a Dapper Dan factory in a cabin close to there. No, he was just stockpiling Dapper Dan. And then he was they, the stock for Dapper Dan. They all pop up, and Tommy just so happens to be floating on a roll top desk. And then, wouldn't you know it, what what floats around in the distance is a cow. On the roof of a cotton house. Now, I will say that the moment that they're all saved, Everett immediately goes back to his doubting and faithless ways. Yep. <laughs> immediately. Ah! Ah! A miracle! Ah! Ah! It was a miracle! Delmer, don't be ignorant. I told you they was flooding this valley. No, that ain't it! We prayed to God and he pitied us. Well, it never fails. Once again, you two hayseeds are showing how much you want for intellect. There's a perfectly scientific explanation for what just happened. That ain't the tune you were singing back down at the gallus. Well, any human being will cast about in a moment of stress. No, the fact is they're flooding this valley so they can hydroelectric up the whole darn state. Yes, sir, south is gonna change. Everything's gonna be put on electricity and run on a paying basis. Out with the old spiritual mumbo-jumbo, the superstitions, and the backward ways. Which, you know what, that... that... Say what you want. I've seen that's one of the most realistic portrayals of faith that I have seen in any movie. I know so many people that when somebody is sick or dead or or dying or any bad things happen in their life, they will go to God. They'll come back to church. They said, "I want to become a new person," only for them to be back on top again and to forget everything that they learned when they were down in the valley. Mm -hmm. All the time, all the time, we see that happen. And you know when they'll be back? The next, next time, time they're in the valley. And mm -hmm. let's just hope that that time in the valley isn't the valley of the shadow of death, and that's their end. Yep. Well, they get back, and uh, they give, or Everett gives his wife the ring, only to find out that it's not her ring. St. my ring. Well, we need that ring. Well, that ring is at the bottom of a pretty darn big lake. Uh-uh. A 9,000 hectare lake. And I don't care if it's 90,000. But honey... That lake was not my doing. Okay. And uh, she says that she's not going to marry Everett unless he goes back and get the ring. Hey, he did have a good idea, though, where he could find one deep. Yeah, he's just going to bite off Vernon. <laughs> so the question I've got for you guys is, uh, would you go back to get the ring? I almost think you'd have to make an effort to go look for something. I don't know how you'd do that. You'd probably have to call your local local scuba diving uh, club and see if you could rent the equipment. And I mean, which is crazy because how would you do that? And to me, it's a picture of of uh, the 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 ex wife, soon to be wife again. Her demeanor, uh, which is the longer we go, demeanor she gets. I think I make the trek as far as the closest pawn shop. Well, and that's the thing. He's he's now Pappy's brain trust. He's going to be having some money come in. He can buy himself a new ring. Yeah, mm -hmm. and Wait, I'd find one that looks close enough, and she wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Yeah. I know, but I was sitting which here is watching. What she wants. 
That's what she wants. I mean, now, she is. See, I don't, I don't know if that's what she wants or if she. I don't just, like her. She might be testing his loyalty. I mean, she's been burned so many times before. She's a gold digger. And then the 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 final line is a throwaway to the Odyssey, wherever it uh, says. Finding one little ring. Yeah, you got that epic heroic tale of the Odyssey, and that is the end of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Now, let's get into our review. Can you make an argument that Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is a faith-based film? I don't think faith-based because it's not based on scripture. It's based on the Odyssey, and the Odyssey is not scripture. Um, Are there elements of faith in the movie? Absolutely. I mean, you know, you have it, – it's replete with it. Right. You know, it's the baptism scene, you know, the uh, the discussion about selling your soul to the devil. I, there's a great deal of uh, faith, you know, discussions one way or the other, you know. Well, I mean, you can, you can make an entire sermon just on the scene in the car. Well, you know, these two have been baptized, and, and you sold your soul to the devil. I'm the only one who's yet unaffiliated, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, the sermon is you can't be unaffiliated. Right. There's no sitting. There's no sitting it out. There's no right in the middle. And so you had two that were uh, uh, would have been affiliated with Christianity, with Christ, and two that would be associated with the devil because one sold a soul to the devil and one just didn't. So, you know, I mean, that kind of thing, of course, is all the way through it. Um, And that I don't know how you honestly I don't know how you have a movie, especially of that time frame in the Deep South. That's not steeped in uh, religion of some sort, right. you know, because um, that was the association that everybody had. You you associated yourself by uh, your religious connections. You were either the Lutheran, you were the Baptist, you were the Catholic or, you know, and, you know, you would come over to somebody's house. And if you were not of the right uh, religious persuasion. Uh, then, you know, you weren't going to be as welcome as someone else, you know, and that's so that that affiliation, that association there would have been strong anyway. So I, I think it was necessarily a part of the um, context, the historical context of the movie. Right. And I agree with you. And I also go as far as to say as the the religious aspects of the film, whether they meant to or not, they got a lot of it right. They I did, mean, right, accidentally, yeah. probably, but yeah. The, I mean, the idea of baptism for salvation, washing away sins, the, uh, you know, I mean, just look at Delmar. He does change. He truly does have a redemptive arc where he's never, I don't, I don't would never classify him as bad. He's naive and he acts foolishly, but from that moment of his baptism on, he does little things that show that he has changed, that he truly mm-hmm. has uh, found redemption. And, I mean, the story from the beginning, the blind man says that it's, uh, it's a story of salvation. There, you have Everett saving his family and marriage. You have Pete saving one more dirty look that he didn't give to the camera. And you have Delmar saving his soul. So I would argue that it is an unintentional faith-based film. You know, I, and when I say faith-based, I mean like, like fireproof or some of those other cheesy Kirk Cameron movies where it's just a 
movie that teaches a good spiritual lesson, not one that's technically or, or necessarily based on scripture. And so in that context, I think it does have some good spiritual lessons that you can draw out of that. So there's with, a lot of spiritual lessons that can be used as illustrations in in a lot of different sermons. You can take a look at the characters as well. You mentioned Delmar, but you can take a look at Everett. You can take a look at Pete. Um, you can take a look at uh, Papi O'Donnell and take a look at um, how they were in life, how they were perceived in life, but also uh, how should we be as Christians in life and mm-hmm. institute change that's going on with us. And I think clear through the movie, there's all these situations that come up, which which can be used as an example um, to use within a lesson. But I, I I struggled I struggled with the idea of faith based, although I think there's the elements of things that that have faith in it. The other thing I really struggled with, and I know we're not kind of not doing the ratings right now, but I want to say the other thing I struggled with was the language. I hadn't watched. Yes. I hadn't watched this movie in probably fifteen years, maybe, maybe twenty. I don't know how long it's been, and uh, I was. I, I didn't remember uh, all the language that was in it, and I guess my ears have become more sensitive to that because, um, you know, I was probably watching some things that maybe I shouldn't have been watching way back then, but. I was very sensitive to the, like, GD. I mean, I can't, I, mm-hmm. I, I was counting those for a while, and I don't even know what the number ended up being. That was used frequently uh, yes. within that. that. That was a struggle. So I got to thinking, could I recommend this film? Well, who would I recommend it to? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't show it at the, at the uh, over at the building on a, on a family night. Uh, I would struggle for, to say, you know, kids, you need to go watch this. Um, because then am I condoning, uh, some of the things that are in there that really, if that had done without, I don't think it would have changed the movie at all. And it, it would have been more pleasant for those that are sensitive to those kind of issues or those kind of, those the, the language and, and some of the other things such as that. And I, I think that's the case. A lot of times when you find that, and you're right, the language in there was, was horrific. And when you find that a lot of times, uh, the movie would have, survive just as well maybe even better without it you know yeah. I, I you know there's really no point no purpose to it and and you did find that throughout it's like why did they put that there yeah you know? so that was that's the the biggest struggle i think with the movie i agree with you 100 scott and mm-hmm. this is this is horrible i i mean that's uh that's just me kind of speaking from the heart right now to say i, I can't i can't think of any members over the congregation i'd say oh yeah you got to watch this movie you know, it's got some language in it, but uh, it's a really funny movie. They would come back to me, I think, and be like, it has some language in it. Uh, I mean, it would be, you know, the G, the GD and the SOB are just, mm, it's not good. I'm just, I'm just saying we have to be careful. And right. I, you know, I don't, I don't like the use of the language there. You know, I, I would not watch this. Uh, I mean, my children have seen it, mm-hmm. uh, but we won't watch it as as a family movie night, even though my children are grown. Uh, we won't watch it as a family movie night in my home. I watched it again, and I'm, I'm like, Scott, I had kind of um, – I kind of lost track of some of it, and it was, it was a little uh, disappointing again mm-hmm. when I was watching it and hearing it because it was, it was like rediscovering it, you know, and I was like, I, I just don't understand the purpose. Mind 
you know, some of the language. So, and, and just be careful what, what they let them push on us. Because, right. uh, I mean, if they change the, if they change some words so that we no longer consider them profanity and, and we broaden people's vocabulary, okay, you know, but um, they don't, you know, the agenda is not going to stop with changing the language so that profanity is no longer profane. You know right. what I'm saying? So, so we have to keep an eye out for that because it's, it's there in, you know, in major doses. Let's give it a rating on a scale of one to 10 and you give it whatever you want. Steve, take it away. <laughs> All right. Well, like I, like I said earlier, I really don't think I've changed this. If it were just if it, without the language, um, I think, I think it's a 10, 10 plus, uh, you know, some of the things that you've pointed out, very well written. It's hilarious. You can't, I, I, I doubt there are very few, very many people on the planet that watch this movie and, uh, and I'd say understand it. It's very easy to understand the humor, but it's funny, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you laugh and you, you get, sometimes you get upset, you know, I mean, you have a, a range of emotions that you really do go through and, uh, and I just, just beautifully, beautifully done on that. Um, and, and the storyline of, of Homer, I mean, of, of, you know, the whole Odyssey, I think they, they do a fantastic job with, really. Um, but, you know, the, the language just, the language is bothersome for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would say movie in general without the language, 10 plus, uh, with the language probably somewhere around a five. Okay. Because it's, it's, there's that much and it's that offensive. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Uh, well, that makes what I have to say foolish. Because <laughs> I think I think the same thing. And if you could find this, if you could find this uh, this movie without that language in it, I would recommend it to anybody. Just because mm -hmm. I think I think it's good acting. I think it's funny. I, I think in just in general, it's just an overall great movie. That there's so many lines that you remember from, but. I, Again, like we go back to the language, and that's why I would give it a, because I can't think of one person that I would go, oh, you got to go watch this because of the language. However, if, if I would find if I would find this somewhere with that had uh, uh, the language taken out of it, oh, I would recommend it. Would recommend it. But with the, it, as is with the one we watched, I'd give it a five. Yeah, I, I, I'm right there with you guys uh, for the, the auspices of this podcast, and that is to rank movies and to give people uh, an idea of whether or not they should watch it. If you find a censored version on TV or whatever, watch it. It's definitely worth your time. Uh, I don't know if VidAngel still has their, their uh, filters where you can watch a movie through uh, their filters and remove profanity and, and things like that, then watch it. I mean, it, it, besides the language, I will say that it is an otherwise clean movie. I'm mean, even the point with the, the, the sirens and the seductresses and things like that. They are fully clothed. It's suggestive, but it's not too suggestive. You, you get what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, for the for the point of this show, I can't recommend it. Uh, we'll give it a five as well. So this is our first rotten, which breaks my heart because I do mm. genuinely love this movie, and it is one of my all time favorite movies. And I know that I shouldn't say that, 
but it, it truly is. But I cannot <laughs> recommend that you watch this movie. And the thing is, too, if I can say this, if anybody listens to this podcast and you know of a version that has removed this language, please email the show and let us know where we can find availability to that. Right. Because I, I would, I, again, without the language, there's a lot of people I would say, you've got to watch this and this version. Now, I will say that I went on Amazon today just to see what others had to say. Because we, we all enjoyed the movie. But I, I wanted to find some negative reviews. And so this is a, a two-star review from Amanda, who uh, is a teenager, apparently. And Amanda the Teenager wrote, If you're planning to have a nice night with a good movie, I don't think you should pick O Brother Where Art Thou. It's pretty pun funny, but there's really no point. In one scene, the three fugitives see these ladies who start singing and seducing them. In my teenage perspective, I don't want to see some old dudes being seduced by beautiful women. George Clooney is hot, though. I was laughing a lot of the time, but I did not... <laughs> I was laughing a lot of the time, but I did not understand this at all. Every couple minutes, I was like, where did this dude come from? My mom and I were in tears, laughing so hard after the movie was over, because we didn't get it at all. Especially the whole flood thing. If you just want to laugh without the annoyance of actual substance, then this movie is for you. <laughs> so that's, that's it, a pretty sad state of a, of, of a comment there when you don't understand this movie. I mean, <laughs> but it's okay. No offense to Amanda. Now to be, okay now, to be fair, when I was looking at, uh, looking at doing the research, George Clooney had to send the script to his uncle in Kentucky and have his uncle read back and explain it to him because of some of the vernacular. He just didn't understand. So, I think because we grew up in the Ohio Valley and down south and and things like that, we do have a uh, we do have a closer connection to some of the dialogue than than people maybe in California or even up north would have. But if you don't understand the whole flood thing, which is literally spoken about about thirty seven times throughout the film, that they have mm -hmm. to get to this ring before the flood, that's your fault, Amanda. That's not that's not the Cohen brothers' fault. They did everything in their power to explain it to you and your mom. You guys were just not paying attention. Well, they were, they were is upset. Hot, I'm glad that we yeah. got that point out. <laughs> they were they were upset about seeing uh, seeing Delmer and Pete being seduced. Well, you know, it's not like they took it from a three thousand year old poem or anything that that <laughs> women are going to seduce men in order to destroy them. You know, I love I love Pete and Delmer, and then you introduced me to the the movie that Delmer's uh, Delmar's in. Uh, but you know, I, in in I'll answer this for me real quick, which would be zero. But I wonder how many people have ever looked at Peter Delmar and went, "Now there is a good looking man." Who in the world <laughs> was Peter Delmar? Pete or Delmar? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <sighs> Uh, Roger B. gave the movie one star and called the movie anti-Christian. Disliked the disrespect of Christianity. I disagree with that. I, I think that they morph... And, and I think that this movie treated Christianity uh, more correctly than pretty much any other secular movie I've seen. Like we mentioned, they probably got it wrong or right on accident. But they never came out and disrespected Christianity. 
No, yeah, I didn't see that either. I, I didn't. I didn't see any indication of disrespect for Christianity. I agree with you that there were there were aspects that they they accidentally got right, but they got right that a lot of people miss. I mean, if anything, I think I think it shed really good light on Christianity. Just in Delmark's life, he changes his life following his baptism. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you watch this, don't because of the language. But if you watch this and you get that from the movie then you got something good from it. I mean, it has potentially uh, good messages in it and good Christian messages in it. Uh, and again, they probably put those in there accidentally. And finally, uh, this was another one-star review. Benaya, who bought the DVD, gave it one star, writing, wanted a CD. I thought it was a CD. <laughs> 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 I'm wait. I'm waiting here for more. No, that was it. That's all he wrote. It. I wanted it. a CD. I thought it was a CD. Now, to be fair, even if you don't watch the movie, buy the soundtrack. It's one of the greatest soundtracks you will ever find. It is. Yeah. And hey, it you is. never know. She may have been planning a trip to Arkansas. Yeah. If you happen to get stuck in a in a tobacco patch in Arkansas, miles from any population. Uh, it, it's a it's a great great soundtrack to kind of get your adrenaline flowing. As a matter uh, of fact, the, the the soundtrack of Oh Brother Where Art Thou made more money than the movie did. That doesn't surprise me. I All mean, right it, there you have it. Um, our first rotten movie. Oh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou painfully rates a five, but it's the right thing to do. Please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Righteous. Follow us on Google Podcasts, on iHeartRadio, or on SoundCloud. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please give us a quick review and five stars. It helps us reach a larger audience. Or you can visit our brand new website, RottenerRighteous.com, and see what's going on there. If you like the show, please tell someone about it. And if you have a suggestion for a movie or television show you would like us to review, or if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can read it. reach us at RottenerRighteous at gmail.com or on Facebook Messenger. Also, if you haven't noticed already, stay tuned just a bit after the closing music for a tiny piece of... Uh, a funny clip that we had to cut out of the show for one reason or another. And I do have just one final question to ask my two guests. Uh, do you guys know why the old man fell in a well? I, he, he tripped? No, it's because he didn't see that well. Thank you so much for listening, sharing, and supporting our show. For Scott and Steve, I'm Zach Geiler, and this has been Rotten and Righteous. Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, we will talk to you all again next week. Until then, remember to say your prayers and obey your parents. He's a satyr! Or just take uh, Forrest Gump's advice. Life is like a box of chocolates. (laughs) Don't give Uh, treats for ghosts. I mean... I had a box of chocolates, and then some creepy old lady stole them <laughs> at the bus stop. She wanted to meet. She wanted to put something on my foot. I think it was my magic shoes. <laughs> I already have my magic <laughs> shoes on. <laughs>